This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles, with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, Go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Establish the fact that we should plan because it is biblical to plan. We should plan because life is short, there's little time. We should plan because we need to live with intentionality. And we should plan because it allows us to focus on the best versus just what's good in life. In the second session, we dealt with what we call the tyranny of the urgent. And explain how that even with a plan, life still happens, doesn't it? And there are all these urgent needs, as we described in a, in a bar graph, that would go through the roof of the building, visually in the theater of your mind, if we were to look at that. And then on this side, bar graph of time is very low. And so there's this chasm between how much time we have to accomplish what God's called us to do and all the things there are to do. And how Jesus overcame that debacle. Not through hard work, but he was a hard worker. Not through just being people-focused, though people was the focus of his ministry, as should be ours. But Jesus overcame this conundrum by daily, recording into headquarters, by daily starting his day with the Heavenly Father. Seeking the Father's will that day as it followed into God's master plan. Certainly Jesus understood God's master plan. But day by day by day, he sought the counsel of God on that day, what he should do in regard to that master plan. Well, in this third session, we're going to look at, after God has revealed to us, through the leadership of his Holy Spirit, what we should prioritize today. That is the instruction that we need to invest our time. But what are some practical things that we could do, as Dr. Holmes alluded to a moment ago, that will allow us to invest our time and not just spend time, or not just waste time? How can we invest our time? And think about time in financial terms. If we make an investment, we expect a return on investments. If we spend money, we know that that money is gone and irrevocably will be regained. So when it comes to our time, how do we invest it rather than spend it? Spending time is a lot like spending money. We spend it, waste it, order it, or invest it, and without a plan, we typically tend to spend it and waste it. So what is the remedy? I would submit today that how we combat poor spending habits and invest rather than wasting our time is, first of all, get serious. Get serious. Billy Sunday was quoted as saying, more men fail from lack of purpose than lack of talent. Get serious. Stop acting childish, just to be quite frank. I mentioned Carol Latham in an earlier lecture, uh, 
noted evangelist to be a man. I remember a sermon that Brother Latham preached where the title of the sermon was, Put Away Your Toys, Boys, and Pick Up Your Tools. <laughs> and he referenced 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, where Paul writes, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I acted like a child. But when I became a man, what? I put away childish things. And so if we're going to invest our time, the first thing that I would submit is that we must get serious. Be mature. Children do what feels good in the moment. Men develop a plan and are mature enough to stick with it to completion. Now ladies, there will be a reference to men in here because typically the individuals I've worked with as we've employed the game plan for life has been men. So we'll use that in a gender neutral sense. You'll understand where we're coming from. But children do what feels good. Men, mature individuals, develop a plan are mature enough to stick with it to completion. The men that we work with, we also encourage to live out what I would describe as the biblical definition of manhood. And we take this from Robert Lewis's definition in Raising a Modern Day Night. Four, four things that men do. Number one, men reject passivity. Reject passivity. We see in the, in the Garden of Eden, there is Adam with his wife being attacked uh, by the serpent. And what's he doing? Is he guarding his home? Is he being active in his role as husband and, and guardian of the home? Absolutely not. We see that Adam is passive and he's standing by and watching. I mean, you would expect Adam to come running with a hoe and chop the serpent's head off. But that's not what happened. Why? Because Adam was being passive. And as men, we have a responsibility to reject passivity. Number two, accept responsibility. Accept responsibility. I enjoy reading about the training, the leadership training that goes on at uh, West Point, the, uh, the military academy in, in West Point, New York. And one of the first things that they teach the new cadets is a concept known as 100% responsibility. Because the greatest challenge they face with young men coming into the academy is that they make excuses. And so there is a 100% responsibility, no excuses, mandatory policy that they must abide by. And the way they do that is they have four possible responses to any question. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuses, sir. Or I don't understand the question, sir. There, is no other, there are no other possible responses to a question. And what they teach them over and over again is to break this habit of making excuses, accepting responsibility, because if they're going to defend our country, you don't want someone on the battlefield making excuses, well, this didn't work, or that didn't work, or it wasn't my fault. And so they put them through the ringer and will often question them about maybe why one of their uh, colleagues' beds wasn't made or, or something that they had nothing to do with. And the first thing they want to say impulsively is, that wasn't my fault. No excuses, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuses, sir. 100% responsibility. Number three, men are to lead courageously. Lead courageously. Courageous means to act in accordance with one's belief, especially in spite of criticism. As men... God has called us to lead with courage. And you can tell the size of a man by how much it takes to discourage him. 
I can't believe they said that about me. I'm just going to throw in the towel. <laughs> Men are called to lead courageously, to act in spite of criticisms. By the way, two, two traits of great leaders that uh, leadership scholars have found, if you were to boil it down to two common traits, of course, the, the first that we would argue would be what Black and Black and we would define as spiritual leadership. And that is, first of all, as Jesus starting your day with God and understanding your spiritual responsibilities. But beyond that, the two major characteristics of great leaders are, number one, this uncommon level of humility. Just off-the-chart level of humility. Just unbelievable. Not thinking of themselves, but thinking of others constantly. Serving others. Biblical servant leadership is what we would call that. The second trait that goes along with, with that unselfish nature of humility would be the trait of, bull, of having a bulldog tenacity. Bulldog tenacity. Simply thinking, if God is leading me to do this, I will not be dissuaded. Now, when you combine these two traits of an, a normal level of humility and bulldog tenacity, that is a lethal combination. But it's very uncommon. Because typically when somebody is abnormally humble, when they have that humility, they don't have the tenacity. Because of criticism, they often will cower to that. And then you have those with bulldog tenacity, but they're anything but humble. Matter of fact, they're usually narcissistic. And so to get this combination of humility and bulldog tenacity is lethal when it comes to to leadership, and when it comes to fulfilling God's will for your life. Because as we talked about, the tyranny urgent will attack. Lead courageously. Number four, invest eternally. Invest eternally. Learn to invest your time versus spending your time. The old adage that we learned as children, when all is said and done, only what's done for Jesus will last. When everything is gone and passed, only what's done for Jesus will last. How true that is. And how does that happen? We invest our time. So living out the biblical definition of manhood is part of getting serious. And by the way, can I say parenthetically, this definition of manhood I think is good for not only us men to learn and put to memory, and let it serve as a filter for us, but to teach to our children. As, as my son, Caleb, he's 22 now. As he was just a little fellow, I, I just read Lewis's book. and I thought, man, this really gives us a succinct definition of what, what a biblical man looks like. And, and quite frankly, if, you were to, if I were to, to have asked very likely, what's the definition of a man? I would have probably gotten about 25, 30 different definitions right here. But this really gives us a good, succinct, biblical basis of a definition. And so I had him learn that, that definition. Now, when he was little, it was very rote in the way that he would recite it. I mean, self-responsibility, rejects passivity, leads courageously, invest eternity. He had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> but over time, I would discipline, discipline him through the filter of those four things. If you didn't take the garbage, what didn't you do? didn't accept responsibility. What does a man do? Accept responsibility. If someone was picking on another at school and he was talking about that and he didn't do anything, I would say, why didn't you do anything? What were you guilty of? 
It's passive. What does a man do? He rejects passivity. It serves as a great filter for raising our children, the biblical definition of manhood. So I would encourage you to have your children, your grandchildren, learn that definition and let it serve as a filter of discipline. By the way, I only had my son learn. I have three daughters. I had all three daughters learn. What's the definition of a man? Now, why in the world would I have my daughters memorize the definition of a man? Because I didn't want them bringing some bum home saying, oh, I'm married. I'm serious. That's the filter for what they're looking for in a young man. Is he passive? Does he accept responsibility? Is he a leader? Will he be a spiritual leader in your home? Is his mind on eternity? So let's get serious. Live out the biblical definition of manhood. Number two, if we're going to learn to invest our time, abide in Christ to determine your top priorities. Abide in Christ. As we talked about in yesterday's lecture, as Jesus commanded the tyranny, the tyranny of the urgent, He abided in the Father. Every day He started with the Father. Father, what are your instructions for today? That viral, devotional life with God is imperative. It's of paramount importance in the life of a believer. I remember reading a book by Bruce Wilkerson uh, several years ago. I can't remember which one of his books it was in, but he, he talked about how that he was going through a period of life he, he would call probably the spiritual doldrums. He, he had been in the ministry for, for 20 plus years, but it just seemed like he was in the doldrums spiritually. And so he went to a a mentor, a sage that he would often go to for counsel. And, and this, this individual quickly sized up his situation. He said, when you first entered ministry, your zeal for God was, was here, but your knowledge of God was here. What has happened over the years is that your knowledge of God is grown, but your zeal for God is down here. And if we're not careful in ministry, if we're not abiding in Christ, that can happen to us. And, and I'll tell you one thing I've experienced, Dr. Holmes, working in a denominational position, if you're not proactive and intentional about your spiritual growth, you'll starve to death spiritually. But Larry, you might could attest to that. And others of you who have worked in denominational, if you're not intentional, you can starve to death spiritually. Why? Because you get caught up in the thick of thin things. We do a lot of administrative things in these positions, and we're not in the pulpit every week. And thus, we may not be in the Word the way that we need to be every week. We're not abiding in Christ as we should. There is no blueprint for Christians to use their time any more than there is for spending money. So, we abide in Christ in John 15. Of course, this is the passage where Jesus gives his final counsel to his disciples before he ascends or before he goes to the cross. And what does he talk about? He takes them out into a vineyard and he talks about bearing fruit. He holds a, a branch, a vine. And he, he gives them a lesson on bearing fruit. And how do they bear fruit? Is it of their own work? Is it by being people focused? Well, certainly those, those are components of it. We have our part to do. But ultimately we realize that if we're going to produce any type of fruit that is meaningful in life, it won't be of our own nature. It will be of God working through us. God is the vine. We are the branches. As we abide in Christ, He abides in us. Christ 
through us produces the fruit. So we abide in Christ, how? Through His Word. Abide in Christ in His Word. Again, His Word is a lamp unto our feet, it is a light unto our path. We abide in Christ through constant prayer. Beginning the day in the Word, beginning the day in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. Now what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Obviously we can't do that. Not in the, not in the sense of the way we think of it with our head bowed all the time. But of course he's talking about here an attitude of prayer. An attitude of God consciousness. An attitude of being surrendered to God in every situation in life. Really for the Christian, prayer should be like breathing. It should be something that, that we do so often that it is subconscious. If we can look to God in that way, I think that's what Paul is talking about. Praying without ceasing. Having that God consciousness. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that a lot of times we hold our breath, don't we? We hold our breath to the truths of God's Word. And Paul says, pray without ceasing. That is what it means to abide in Christ. A couple of months ago, I got a newsletter from Evangelism Explosion. And one of the quotes on that uh, newsletter caught my eye. It simply said this, If God saved everybody He prayed for today, how many people would He save? I want to tell you that was convicting. That was convicting. Having an attitude of prayer for what matters most to God. What matters most to God? People matter most to God. Abiding Christ through constant prayer. P.T. Forsyth states the worst sin in the world is prayerlessness. You ever thought about that? I mean, that's quite an assertion, by the way. The worst sin. Is I would think of, okay, what's the worst sin? If we were to try to categorize sin, which we know is, is not something we necessarily should do, but if we were to try to do that from a human perspective, what's the first thing that would come to mind? Well, probably murder, rape, adultery, things of that nature. But he asserts that the greatest sin is prayerlessness. Now, why? Why? Because we're saying when we're prayerless that we don't need God. We don't need you, God. Now, we would never probably overtly say that. But when we fail to pray, our actions are speaking louder than our words. Abide in Christ. Focus your energy on what only you can do. Abide in Christ, but focus your energy on only what you can do. Wayne Canero asserts in uh, his book, Leading on Empty, that about 85% of what we do, we could delegate to someone else. About 85%. He further asserts that approximately 10% of what we do, we could train someone else to do. The remaining 5% is what only we can do. And that 5% should make up our top priorities. Now, we're not saying neglect the other 95%. If you're in a leadership position, guess what? You're responsible for all of it. But about 95% of everything going on, you can, you can delegate or train someone to do. But about 5% of what there is to do, only you can do. So learning to focus on, on only what we can do is, is, again, of paramount importance. As we abide in Christ, there are some things that only we can do. Only we can abide in Christ. 
We can't have somebody do that for us. We can't delegate that out. Only we can be in the Word. Only we can be in communion with the Father. We can't delegate that. Only we can be a husband to our wife or a wife to our husband. Only we can be a father to our children or a mother to our children. You can't delegate that out. Only you can do that. And for those tasks that only you can do, those should be priority. Because there's no substitute. You know, a lot of what we do just doesn't matter. It just really doesn't matter, does it? Learning to prioritize what's important. Because so much doesn't matter. You've heard the saying that a hound can whip a skunk, but is it worth it? (laughs) Maybe we can do some of the things that we do better than others, but is it worth it? Are we, are we engaging in the other 95% at the expense of the 5%? That's the issue. Number three, inspect what you expect. If we're going to learn to invest our time, inspect what you expect. Or better said, possibly, inspect what God expects. We don't do what we expect, but what we inspect. And I find it amazing in life how that when we don't inspect certain things, how they go undone. And and how unaware that we are of of reality. An example of that. Remember the first time you heard yourself on a tape recorder? What did you think the first time you heard yourself on a tape recorder? That's not me. I don't sound like that. That is not me. But in fact, that is you. That is the way that you sound. That is reality. In the study of psychology, perhaps you remember the Jahari window. Remember that? Back in 1955, Joe Loft and Harrington Ingham came up with this concept of the Jahari window. Joe and Harry, Joe Harry window is how that came to be. And in the Joe Harry window, there are four quadrants. The first quadrant is what you know and what I know. We call that the arena. Out in the arena, we see it all. The second quadrant is what I know, but you don't know. That's called the facade. The third quadrant is what you know, but I don't know. That's called the blind spot. The fourth quadrant is what you don't know, nor I know. That's the unknown. Now, the two most important quadrants in that, especially from a spiritual perspective, would be that second quadrant, what I know, but you don't know. That's about character. Okay? Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you really are. And from a leadership perspective, there's no substitute for character. Uh, to, To live out a game plan for life in a way that is pleasing to God, there's no substitute for character. Being the same person in private as you are in public. That there be no chasm between the first quadrant, the arena, and the second quadrant, the facade. But then that third quadrant is also important. That's what you know, but I don't know. It's my blind spot. It's what I don't see. And with regard to us inspecting what we expect, we need other people speaking into our lives to inspect what we're expecting. We need people that hold us accountable. Every Friday, I've got a man that I meet with 
that is just black and white. And that's what I need. I mean, he doesn't mince for words. He lets me know what's going on in quadrant three because I'm asking to. And can I tell you, a real friend will do that for you? We, we've got too many Facebook friends and not enough real friends. We need real friends who push us closer to Christ. That's what a real friend does. He addresses quadrant three. What I don't know, but you know. We need to determine if there is a gap between where we spend our time and what we have determined is most important in life. If there is, we have an integrity issue. If there's a gap between what we say is important and what we do, we have an integrity issue. Because integrity is the integration, the merging of what we say on one hand and what we do on the other. If there's a gap between the two, it's an integrity issue. Inspect what you expect. If we're going to learn to invest our time, number four, once we determine what it is we're going to do, we need to write it down. Write it down. And I can't emphasize this enough. There is a plethora of empirical data that validates if you write something down, the chances of you fulfilling that are statistically significantly higher than if you don't. As a matter of fact, we, we have a lot of good ideas that are nothing but ideas for the rest of our lives because we never write it down and act upon it. Once you determine what is priority or what should be priority as God intervenes, as God makes that known, be serious enough to write it down. I think if we're really serious, we will write it down because it means something to us. I heard Adrian Rogers say one time, I would never think of picking up my Bible to study without a journal. And what he was saying was, as God shows me a truth, I don't want to lose that. It's too important. It's too serious. I'm going to jot that down. And so once God determined, or lets us determine what is a priority, what should be priority, write it down. Begin with the end in mind. This is called reverse engineering. Reverse engineering. As we seek to invest our time, a good exercise is to begin by writing out your eulogy. Write out your eulogy. Now that's a sobering exercise. On page 32 of your book, that I have an example of, of a eulogy. It's this one that, that I wrote for myself. And, and I want to emphasize something there that I stay at the top in writing. This eulogy is written from the perspective of the man I want to be, not the man that I am. In case you're reading that and thinking, well, who does he think he is? <laughs> That's the man I want to be. And by writing that eulogy, it serves as a compass for everyday life. If that's the, the master plan, in a sense, for my life, based upon what I feel God leading me to be, to do, then my eulogy serves as, as a compass. Now, the men that we work with every Friday, uh, their assignment two weeks ago was to, was to have their eulogies written. And so they did that. We took them through this process. Be careful if you're doing this. John Ross Henderson is the Executive Vice President of First Security Bank in Conway. He wrote his eulogy and printed it on the network printer. <laughs> One of the admin assistants uh, picked up a few minutes before he went to, to get it. She picked it up. She was 
looked at the eulogy from John Ross Anderson. She said, is there something you can tell me? <laughs> but it was a very sobering exercise. And how many people stop to think about, just stop to think about, what will it be like at the end? And how am I living today in order to fulfill what I feel God calling me to do with my life? Get serious about it. Write your eulogy. Don't just think about your funeral, however. I think that's a good exercise. It's a sobering exercise. But don't just think about your eulogy. Think about the judgment seat of Christ. Think about the day that you stand before the Lord and you're looking eye to eye for able. If we're able. And what is he going to say? What would he say right now if God forbid you're to be taken out of this life today? What would he say right now? That, that's a good question to mind. But even more so, what do you want him to say? What do you want to hear? Get serious about what you want him to hear. Write it down. So not only think about the judgment seat of Christ, but, but literally think about your funeral. Think about the day that, that your body is brought in the casket. What do you want said on that day? What do you want people to think about you? What do you want people to say about you? What do you want people to, to remember you by? I remember a number of years ago, this was back before AT&T was broken up. You know, it's a conglomerate now. But back during the day of, of the old Bell system, the president of AT&T had over a million employees under his his jurisdiction, largest company in the world at that time. And, uh, and the individual had, had sacrificed to get to the point that he was, and he eventually retired. He sacrificed his family, he sacrificed his health, but he had a position of power and prestige. The presidents would often refer to him for counsel, world leaders. Well, he had to have a leg amputated. He was in the hospital. And he was thinking back over his life. And he thought about all the people that he had invested in along the way. And there was one that he did not, and that was his wife, who was sitting by in the rocking chair next to the bed. And he realized just how foolish that he had been. Investing his life in all those other people at the expense of his wife. He said, you know how many of those people called me while I was in the hospital to check on them? Not one. How many letters I got from these people just to say, look, we're praying for you? And he realized how foolish he did to invest, actually, to spend his life, not invest, to spend his life in things that didn't matter at the expense of what really did, his relationship with God, his relationship with his wife. Pat Morley put it this way, he said, why is it that we invest or spend so much of our time with those people who won't even cry at funeral? You think about a funeral, you've got those that are closest to the individual in the front, and as you make your way to the back, you know, the guy on the back seat, he's wondering what's for lunch. <laughs> and if we look at where we spend our time, a lot of times, it's with those guys on the back who really don't care that much for us. We're spending time, not investing time, if we're not careful. So, write out a game plan for life that serves as a roadmap to ensure there is not a gap between how we spend our time and energy and, and this should have said, and what we consider to be most important. Now, I mentioned to you in the first session, there are a few errors in my book, but I apologize for that. But that last sentence should end with, and what we consider to be most important. What we consider to be most important. Now, 
Let me clarify something here. Write out a game plan for life that serves as a roadmap. Well, didn't you say that Christian life is not a roadmap, but a relationship with God? Yes, absolutely. But I would also say this. To know and not to do is still not to know. I think Cuddy was credited with saying that, but I think it actually came from Confucius before. You know, a lot of times people begin to cite people of the modern day that really got somebody yesteryear. I think it was Confucius that initially said that. To know and not to do is still not to know. James put it this way. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. James 4, 17. He writes, look, to know good and not do it, you would sin. So when I talk about writing this down, I mean trying to overcome that. To know and not to do is still not to know. If we know what God wants us to do, get it down. Take it serious and get it down so we can act upon it each and every day. Most people spend more time planning how they will spend time on their one-week vacation than how they spend their time for the other 51 weeks of the year. Is that not true? We chart out the course. We know exactly what we're going to do each and every day. Why? Because it means something to us. We're putting some money in it. We're leaving home. We're going to get everything out of that trip that we possibly can. You see the dichotomy? While life is happening, while time is ticking, the game clock of life is continually ticking down. Maybe get serious. Maybe we write it down. Number five, last point. If we're going to learn to invest our time, and we practice discernment and discipline. Invest time discerning God's will for your life. Just stop to think. Now, this is a whole other session. This could be a whole series on the will of God. That's the age-old question. How can I know the will of God for my life? Well, first of all, very, very succinctly, let's say, you realize God has a universal will that affects all of us. God has a general will for all of us. Uh, it's, it's, it's God's will that we accept Christ. That's why He sent Christ. It's, it's God's will that we pray without ceasing. It's God's will that we fulfill the Great Commandment, the Great Commission. We, we know a lot about God's will. That's God's general will. And then there's God's, I believe, specific will. Some people would differ on that and their interpretation of that. But how many people just stop to say, okay, Lord, like Jesus did each morning, what's your will? What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do today? Just taking time to listen to God. Discerning God's will. And then be disciplined to live out God's will day after day. Again, it's not a roadmap. It's a relationship. But once we understand God's master plan, what are we going to do each day in our daily plan to see that come to fruition? Jesus set that example, praying each morning. Discipline means doing what you are supposed to do, when you are supposed to do it, whether you feel like it or not. Doing what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, whether you feel like it or not. That's what it means to be mature. That's what it means to be disciplined. You realize that people don't determine their future. Their disciplines and habits determine their future. Our disciplines and our habits determine where we'll end up. We think, well, I want to accomplish so-and-so. How do we do that? We don't focus on so-and-so. We focus on what I need to do today to make that happen. And we employ godly disciplines and habits. And this is really a matter of being versus doing. 
being versus doing. For example, if I want to lose weight, I can, I can focus on the doing part or I can focus on the being part. Now, the doing is I'm going to, I'm going to do without sweets or sweet tea or fill in the blank, your favorite thing. I'm going to do without that. How long will that last? Not that long, will it? But if I focus on the being, I want to be healthy. I want to discipline myself to be the person God would have me be. That, that's being. See, doing is transactional. Being is transformational. And so when it comes to accomplishing something in life, we want to have a being mentality, not a doing mentality. A transformational mentality, not a transactional mentality. So for example, if, if I pledge, I want to read my Bible. Now, from a doing, transactional perspective, we're going to read our Bible. We're going to check that off. I did it. I did God a favor. I read my Bible. <laughs> but if we're looking at it from a being perspective, a transformational perspective, we say, I'm going to read my Bible. Why? Because I want to be more like Christ. And the Bible tells me how to do that. I want to read my Bible. Because David says that, if I hide God's word in my heart, I will not sin against God. That's a being perspective, not a doing perspective. And understanding habits and disciplines, and that is what leads us ultimately to our goal, is extremely important as we practice discernment and discipline. Begin each week and each day by prayerfully prioritizing tasks that need to be done. Prayerfully prioritizing tasks. In our leadership administration class, and bless their heart, they're, they're hearing some of, in this lecture series, what, what they're hearing during the semester. God, God bless you. <laughs> when we talk about when it comes to maximizing the time that God gives you every day, identifying what we call the three MITs, most important tasks. So of this chimney of tasks that we have, with this limited time that we have, what three would we consider of all the things that we have to do today to be the most important out of all of those? And we focus on those three and we practice strategic plan neglect of everything else. We will get those three done. The three most important tasks. So when it comes to prayerfully prioritizing the tasks that God gives us, it's a matter of becoming a master of understanding prioritization. And not only do we identify the three most important tasks, but we practice a concept we call Eat That Frog. It goes back to a book that Brian Tracy wrote. And that means whatever of those three tasks are the most difficult, do it first. And if you have two frogs to eat, eat the ugliest one first. <laughs> because you have more energy. Bring focus to your day. As you, as you surrender yourself to the Lord, he makes it known to you, this is, this is the burden on my heart for you today. Focus on that. Then budget some margin into your week for un unforeseen events. This is your emergency fund. Now, this is tough. I, I find this probably the most difficult to budget margin into your week. Because I tend to be task-oriented. Now, Jesus was not task-oriented, was he? Jesus was people-oriented. And we have to discipline ourselves to be people-oriented. Because what will happen is I will schedule tasks, task after task after task, and if people get in the middle of that, I get, I get a little bit frustrated. And, and I lose sight of what's important to God. People. We're in the people business, not the task business. 
And how do we overcome that? We budget margin into our week. You know, in your financial planning, Dave Ramsey or uh, the guys from Crown Financial, they'll, they'll tell you you need an emergency fund. Three to six month emergency fund for expenses that happen that you're not expecting so that it doesn't throw you out of kilter. Well, building margin into our day and week is a great discipline so it doesn't throw us out of kilter when God sends somebody our way, when people get involved. An emergency fund. C, stay focused on the day at hand. I talked about Saban and his process, but Saban teaches what he calls the process, focusing on the next play, not the game, day by day by day. As new requests come your way, always evaluate them in the light of what you have prayerfully prioritized. Evaluate them in the light of what you have prayerfully prioritized. Now notice this quote with me in your outline. One may work day and night to achieve what seems significant to them and others, but if one is not fulfilling the work God has for them, the work is in vain. They have spent their life, not invested their life. So set aside a few hours each month to focus prayer and longer range planning. Prayerful waiting on God is indispensable to effective service. Learning to invest our time. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we thank you for the teachings of your word. And Lord, there, there is this, this constant struggle uh, living our daily lives, knowing that our time is limited, that our tasks are not. Father, it is so easy for us to be lured into the thick of thin things, the minutiae of life, spending our time on things that really don't matter. And yet our greatest asset that you've given us beyond our relationship with you, of course, is time and energy. Help us understand, Father, how to use that more productively, more effectively, by focusing on the things that are important to you. Father, help us to get serious. Help us to abide in you on a daily basis so that we understand how to prioritize. Help us to inspect what you expect. Father, help us to, to think ahead in time what it will be like when we stand before you at the final judgment, at that judgment seat of Christ, when we give account for the way that we've used the time and the energy you've blessed us with. And Father, help us on a daily basis to discern your will and to, to live out the spiritual disciplines so that we can accomplish your will for your glory in Jesus' name.